Rutgers legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Aloha and hello. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is the founder of Solve Y, nosebleed cash game legend, and one of the best souls in the entire poker world, Matt Berkey. In case you aren't up to date on your CPG history, Berkey was guest number one way back when CPG launched in late 2019. Since that initial conversation, I've grown to learn that Berkey is one of the most honest, generous, and genuine human beings I've ever had the pleasure of getting to know, and I feel very blessed to call him my friend. And before you hop into today's episode, I would like to add an update. When Berkey and I recorded this conversation, a subscription to Solve for Why had been priced at $9.99 per month, down from their pre-pandemic price of $149.99 per month, but starting back on April 1st, 2021, the cost of a subscription will be going up to $49.99 per month. That is still a 66% discount from where it was a year ago and one of the very best values in the whole poker world. With that said, in today's show, Berkey's about to take you on a trip using the Wayback Machine and tell you stories about his biggest influence in pursuing poker, the time he made a huge hero call in a home game with a bunch of colorful characters, including a hitman, that led to him getting frozen out of the game, and the powerful life lesson he learned from his less-than-spectacular college baseball coach. You're also going to learn the power and responsibility poker coaches have when giving feedback to their students, why Berkey and I think progress in poker software and training has forced us out of our poker adolescence, what Berkey sees as the next step in the solver evolution, and much, much more. So without any further ado... I bring to you the founder of Solve for Why, the one and only Matt Berkey. Berkey, welcome back to the show, man. It's been a long time. How you doing? Good. How have you been? I've been doing well. Just hold up in my cave for the past year or so, not getting out and making a bunch of podcasts. How how has Solve for Why been during the pandemic? It's good. Uh, yeah, I feel like it was a bit of a loaded question since we caught up for an hour prior. Yeah, but, uh, we've been talking for literally an hour here before <laughs> before we started the actual yeah. conversation. Um, yeah, no, software is good. I, I actually had a pleasant surprise. Um, I was putting together the quarterly projections for this year, and I, I hadn't done it yet, but I, I went back and looked at last year's uh, financials. We had our biggest year. Really? I don't know how. We had one academy. So we lost like, you know, a half a million in revenue from the Academy. We dropped our subscription price from $100 to $10. And somehow we grew 30%. I don't get it. Well, I guess, you know, like we were just talking about the pandemic, people are staying inside and watching a bunch of shit on their computers. So I, I think too, like the upside of your, uh, your subscription model is that it's so fucking cheap that like, who's going to cancel it? Because it's like so valuable yeah. and so cheap. It's like, it's honestly takes more effort to cancel it than to just let it run, even if you don't yeah. watch any content for a few months. No, that's true. That's true. Well, cool, man. I'm I'm glad that Solve for Why is treating you well. Glad you're healthy. All that stuff. 
But uh, I wanted to ask you, who's your biggest influence in becoming a professional poker player? Uh, that's kind of an interesting question because it takes me way, way back, obviously. I've been playing like what I would consider to be professionally since 03. And I was super, super against the idea of this being a career path. Just Why? growing up. I think just like growing up outside of Pittsburgh in you know a very blue collar type of city, this wasn't really... I was all about bucking trends and not going the traditional route. Like, don't get me wrong. I never wanted to work a nine to five, but playing poker professionally wasn't exactly entrepreneurialism, uh, at least not back then. So I think that there was a certain stigma around gambling. I had never gambled prior uh, to playing poker and never really gambled outside of playing poker. So I, I guess, yeah, I wanted to live up to those more traditional standards, despite the fact that I never really wanted to work a nine to five. With that said, one of my best friends growing up, Brian Lamana, who actually uh, still works for me now, was very much of the opposite mindset. He was, he was the one closest to me who was also kind of like introducing me to the game and pushing me to, to lean into what I was good at. You know, we were naturally very good at different things. And I think he recognized some things in me that lent uh, my well, skill what, set. What are you good at? What are you good at? What's he good at? He was very disciplined. Which I know, surprisingly, I should be the disciplined one in, in the group, but like I'm not when it comes to decision making. I'm very spontaneous. I'm very erratic. Uh, I, well, at least in my younger days, anyway. Um, probably a lot more calculated now, but uh, unless yeah, it, it, unless it comes to nailing down time zones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently, not. I'm not good with detail, man. At, at the end of the day, I am super not good with detail. I'm very much a big picture guy. Um, but yeah, I, I give in to whims pretty easily and that's not great in poker. You know, if you just want to see a guy's hand, uh, that's not really a good mindset to be operating from. He was incredibly critical about the way that money went into pots and you know, it allows him to win for the better part of a decade. I was very much into the meta, into the psychology of it all. I just felt like I had a really great read on people. And that was something that like, you know, he always observed and, and noticed in me too especially like in 03, I, I mean, we kind of joke about it now because it's unfathomable to some of the young guys who are playing the game at this point. But like in 2003 to 2007-ish, we weren't that far removed from what you see portrayed in Rounder. You know, a hand over a mouth or a wipe of the brow. It, it, like people literally wore their hands on their face. And I was just pretty doubt into that aspect of, of poker as a whole. Yeah, I can tell you that most of the conversations with my friend and I, beyond just the strategy, I would say probably 70% of it was like, did you feel like he was strong? What did he look like? What were his mannerisms? Yeah. I mean, it was all physical and reading our opponents. And like, I think EQ gets a bad rap and like, quote unquote, field players just get an especially bad rap in the poker community. They're like, oh, you can't prove it. You're just like a field player. And people yeah. like assume that like field player means that we're feeling something and then acting based on our feeling when it's not the case it's right. we're reading other people's emotions and how they feel and acting on that right which isn't a thing that you can kind of quantify and hold a manager three you can't just filter for like opponent felt uncomfortable on river yeah. um so it's a harder thing to quantify but it's absolutely a major part of winning poker in the live realm and even in the online realm, to be honest with you, like there's a lot of reads that you can get based on timing tells and all sorts of things that I think are just undervalued by the community at large. But back then, man, it, it was, it was a, 
a really big deal. And I think it's, I think it's today is still a really big deal, but you know, I, I agree. I think that it's an added layer uh, where you can drive edge. I, I don't think it should be the backbone to your strategy. Obviously you need to play sound poker still. Um, but you know, you could draw pretty easy parallels, right? So if, if you were to observe somebody who was lost on a hike or had, a, had their car break down, they would look a certain way, right? They wouldn't look like the same version of themselves uh, walking down a busy street towards work or sitting in the comfort of their own home, right? Like all of those demeanors are very different and it's just born out of simple survival instincts, right? We, we have this fight or flight system that, you know, triggers certain mannerisms, certain bodily movements, certain responses such as a high pulse or, or shallow breathing or whatever. And it's, it's ignorant to just ignore it unless it's of no value to you. And the people that it's of no value to are people who probably largely ignore that aspect of themselves, right? Where it's like, they just want to be students of logic and rational thinking and robotic is as humanly possible, just remove all the variables, but it's added info, you know, you're a, you're playing as human beings who have emotions. You can't just flip the switch and say, oh, no emotions today, right? Like, mm -hmm. imagine the worst day of your life, right? Where you're just in total despair and agony. Could you just flip a switch and not feel it? Is that like a, right. a possibility on the worst day of your life? No, you're an emotional creature. You're going to feel it. And I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the show, but like, I consider myself because I put in a, a ton of time playing live. I've been a professional, you know, since 2003, like, there was a thing that people used to do back in the day where it was such an obvious physical tell. It makes me laugh now that I think about it, but they would like make a bet on the river and they would like grab their hand and like hold it over the muck. Right. Like mm -hmm. when they think their yeah. guy, the opponent's going to fold, they're like, yeah, come on, let's move on to the next hand. Like, let's go. And it's like, it's always the nuts. Like it's just always super strong. And I got it in my head that like one day against a really good player, I'm going to do this as a reverse tell. And we play a big pot. And like I said, hardened poker warrior. Like I get my cards. I, I, you know, I uncap my hand and I put it over the muck. And like, I'm not, I'm telling you, this was the hardest fucking thing. It was like trying to put two magnets together that are like up, you know, the, the same pole. Like yeah. my, my body refused to cooperate. It was like, yeah. don't do this. Please don't do this. Don't, what right. are you doing? don't do it. Um, I did do it. And the guy instantly folded, which was great, but it just made me realize like how fucking hard it was for me to do as a bluff. And it was like, man, my body just did not want to do that. And, and like, that's the, that's the power of emotions while you're yeah. playing poker. This is again, somebody that had probably played a thousands of hours at that point. And it was hard for me. So I, you know, other and it folks, was pre-planned pre-planned right. like it, it was like in my mind is something that i'm going to do one day mm -hmm. um so somebody that's like inexperienced in the pressure cooker playing poker of course their emotions are going to betray them and of course yeah. you can get reads yeah 100 percent. couldn't agree more so going back to your story i don't know how i how i took us down that tangent but you know you you and your friend y'all are opposite he's the disciplined one you're the one with the uh high emotional intelligence so I guess, continue on. Yeah. So uh, I guess after, by this point, I graduated college in tw uh, 2005. So like at this point, it was time to make a decision. He was already two years into just like straight rounding. He dropped out of, uh, out of college sophomore year. Uh, he had now moved into 
uh, my college apartment and we were going to a lot of underground games, things like that. And I just remember there being a discussion at one point where uh, I was very adamant that uh, I didn't think this could be done professionally. And he was strongly in the other camp. Uh, a second conversation took place post-graduation where he was just like, you know, I'm a professional poker player now. And I kind of was just like, yeah, I guess you are. Like, you've been living independently for two years. You don't need money from anybody. You have a, a reasonable working bankroll. And I was kind of in the same boat. Like, I'm self-sustaining. I have working capital. I have all of these opportunities to games. And he was just like, we're doing this. And uh, at, at that point, it was just kind of like, okay, like, I, I think that this is a viable thing. Um, I'll sit down at some point and do some cost-benefit analysis and, and figure out, you know, what's the worst case and what's... But, like, the alternative is that I become a computer programmer. And I fucking hate it, right? Like, <laughs> I, yeah. I dragged my feet through school. I never went to class. I spent 10x the amount of time in the gym as I did in the classroom. And, you know, my heart was broken from, from uh, not becoming a professional baseball player. So it's like, am I really going to sit down and write, like, millions of lines of codes for the next two, three decades of my life? Well, when you put it that way, it was like, I'm out. Yeah, uh, no brainer. I, I want to point out the irony here, though, that like professional poker, you didn't think was a, you know, viable career path, but mm -hmm. professional baseball player, <laughs> that was the no brainer. It, and and the thing was, it was like I didn't even think I had to get lucky to have <laughs> that come to fruition. It was just like nobody wants it more than me. That's enough. Yeah, that's that's enough. Like only yeah. like. Almost no one actually becomes a professional baseball player. That literally player. meant nothing to me. You could have told me that 1% of people make it or 0.1%, and I would have just been like, whatever, I'm still in that group. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, that's probably the mindset that you need to have to actually go pro, uh, yeah. because if you did know the reality of the situation, you would probably, that'd probably be pretty, pretty tough. It's helpful to, to have talent also, though. Yeah, you know, talent, talent does help. Yeah, I kind of um, like that part. <laughs> Yeah, that's a major factor as it relates to going yeah. pro and pretty much anything. Yeah. So 2005, you're doing it. You're going down the, the path of being a professional poker player and pretty much never look back from that point, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of hiccups along the way. Um, but Brian was a, an amazing you know, support system in the early goings of things. And then we branched out a little bit. Um, I've been friends with Brent Hanks since 05. Uh, we used to play the same game at Salamanca Casino in New York. Uh, we moved out to Vegas together, the three of us and a couple others. Um, so I always had this nice little tight support group. And I've always been very much of the mindset of like your opponents are your enemies kind of thing. So I never really strayed outside of that. Like I didn't build this big social network. I didn't want it. Right. I never wanted to, especially like back then. Because strategies weren't necessarily figured out. You were mostly playing the man. And when you develop some sort of meta or dynamic with somebody where it's like, well, we're friends and we've talked hands before. And like, you know, uh, something along the lines of like, well, I know that he knows that I know that he knows that I didn't want to go down that path. It was just like, I want to hate all of you. I want you all to hate my face. And we want to exchange big amounts of money between one another. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a pretty common mentality especially from a competitive standpoint i i know that a friend of mine adam 
the guy that was in the Olympics, won a gold medal. He told me that like his coach in the Olympics, they did visualization exercises and they would visualize that like, you know, they were Olympic rowers and world champions and favored to win the Olympics. And they would visualize that like the other person's boat like capsizes. And in the visualization, it was like, you're going to take your oar and you're going to force their head under the water. <laughs> like that was like, that was what they would visualize. Like you're going yeah. to, you're going to kill these people. Like these people, like, you know, that, that's just how cutthroat it was. Ultimately it ended up that that wasn't very, a very sustainable or healthy way to go about competing. Sure. But sure. I, I get the, you know, I get the idea behind it. Yeah. I, I think for me to, um, I struggled a lot in the early goings of being a little bit too empathetic. Uh, I, I would have a hard time seeing somebody like wander out of the room with their head down because they just lost a significant amount of money that meant something to them. Like there was part of me that just like wanted to make it right. And there was also a part of me that felt really entitled when I lose. And I just desperately wanted somebody to come up, pat me on the back and say like, here's your buying back, man. You know, uh, that was a hard thing for me to to get over the first couple of years. Um, and making it a blood sport simplified that a little bit, right? I knew that when I was on the mound and I gave up a shot, nobody was fucking there. I was on an island, right? Nobody was going to come out, pat me on the ass and say, like, you did your best, man. Go get the next guy. Uh, so, like, you're on your own. And I had to kind of, like, transpose that mindset into this game where money's being exchanged and more money than I'm comfortable with. I had never seen a thousand dollars in my life prior to becoming a poker player in college. So like to lose that amount in a pot was like unfathomable to me. And when, you know, the first couple of times it happens, it's like, I, I was beyond reproach. So I think like getting that toughness and grittiness and resilience kind of instilled in me where it's like, as long as we're all at this table, we agreed to the same construct. And there is no hard feelings, no matter what happens. Yep. Nobody's cheating. Everybody knows the rules. Everybody knows the stakes. Everybody's in this together. That's really the best way to go about it. You know, I still struggle tremendously with this. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, um, it's go ahead. I can't gamble with friends. I I just can't gamble with friends. I it's stupid. um, But and I know that this is like some form of self-sabotage, but I punt if I'm with friends. And I don't mean necessarily poker. Like if you and I had a free throw shooting contest and I'm the better free throw shooter, I'm going to lose an unfair amount of the time. Don't you have a bet going right now about a 70-day challenge? Uh, I'm free rolling a bunch of people. <laughs> I, I could. I, it would be impossible for me to lose this bet. Like yeah. it, the, the 75 hard challenge, it's two workouts a day, uh, no alcohol, no cheat meals. And you have to read 10 pages of nonfiction a day. Uh, you also have to upload a progress pick every day. And it's like, outside of the nonfiction and the progress pick, it's my life anyway. So like, I basically was just trying to incentivize a lot of my friends to kind of write the path a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're not training on a regular basis, the one thing that I think is, <laughs> the one part about part of that challenge that's the toughest is, just the soreness of doing two a days every single day. Yeah. Like it's very, very hard for your body to recover after like two weeks. You're just going to feel absolutely fucking miserable. I would true. imagine. Very, very true. I'm doing a lot of recovery stuff. A lot of like sauna work, a lot of cold, cold ice baths, uh, you know, things that promote and stimulate recovery. Yeah. You have to, you have no choice. Um, cool. So let's talk about your favorite poker session ever. 
So, okay. and, and we actually kind of jumped over the empathetic, you know, you being extremely empathetic with your friends and losing bets to them an unfair amount of the time. I do want to touch on that because like I have problems with, here's the thing that I did that I think is stupid and that is horribly negative EV. But like I made friends with a guy who is now passed and was a billionaire. And he was the reason why bigger games at commerce ran. Like he would come in and, you know, the new game would run or he would get a seat automatically, regardless of the board. It didn't matter. Um, and him and I became very good friends just through table banter and talking that like he stopped wanting to play pots against me and wanted to check yeah. it down. And like, because I'm, because I'm me, I did that. And every time it happened, I thought, fuck, what am I doing? Like, why, why am I allowing this to happen? And like the alternative, I have a good friend of mine. His name is uh, Tango. Tango, on the other hand, Max tried to do that to him like twice. And Tango was just like, Max, I'm stuck right now. I'm just playing against everybody. And like, it was totally fine. And I'm like, why the fuck didn't I just say that in the first place? Why didn't I just say like, let's play against each other. Why did I eat like, get coerced into doing this, but I don't really want to. So yeah, I, I feel your pain. I think I'm, I'm probably pretty similar to you. Yeah. It's um, I think it's born out of social dynamics. Like it, because like outside of the construct of, of the actual game where you're trying to make money and exchange dollars and things like that, uh, particularly in live, you're also, you know, you're, you're building these very shallow exchanges and, and relationships. And if you're the type of person that, um, you know, leads with a certain value system or uh, even a certain value proposition where it's like what you can get out of me is trust. Like I'm a trustworthy person. The second that that's like kind of like what you lean on in a game full of deceit, you're forced to prove that trustworthiness, right? And like it's subconscious. It's just like, you know, I, I... Something about me is like that I, I like being transparent, open and trust trustworthy and like you can count on me not to lie and things like that. So like when somebody kind of reaches for an olive branch, I'm very quick to just say yes. You know what I mean? Because it's like I like that. I, I like the fulfillment of bridging those gaps and uh, e- even if they are relatively shallow relationship, building them. But like you're right now, your bottom line just went to shit. Yeah. And I mean, everybody else loves it right like everybody that's sitting and playing against me is like great like we don't even have to compete with him anymore like he's he's out out of the running Mm uh so yeah i mean it's to me though i I think like poker it is a lot of shallow relationships but some of the most fulfilling and best relationships that i have in the world have been born from playing cards against people and just getting to know them so like i guess for me like i i become friends with people like maybe too quickly i I don't know exactly how that works but yeah i just i get close i like people and then once i like them like i don't want to hurt them (laughs) i don't want to harm them and then they you know they don't want to play hard then i just have gone along with it uh but you know at some point i I do make it a a point now that like i'm not going to check down i'm not going to slow play like we're just when we're at the poker table, we're fucking at war with each other. And when we stand up, we're friends. And that's just how I have to live my life so that I can right. sleep at night. <laughs> or eat. Or eat, right. That, that eating helps. Uh, yeah. winning, winning money helps. Um, yeah. Okay, so now 
tell me the story about your favorite poker session ever. Okay. I was going to lean into like, I have, I have a couple really memorable, huge sessions where I won over a million and a half. I have two actually. Um, but they don't really stand out as, I don't, I, I, I mean, they're my favorites for, for very, <laughs> very clear and utter reasons. Um, but they're not as memorable as like those early sessions where you just have hates money on the line. And, you know, if, uh, if things go sour, you're kind of just out. So I think that my favorite poker session uh, probably would have been, and I guess this would have been like 2006 or so. And it actually got me kicked out of this game. It, it ended up getting me banned from the game, but uh, I didn't really care. I mean, I did care, but like, whatever. Um, so I was playing this underground game in Pittsburgh. It was 1020. It was the biggest I'd ever played at that point. And I probably had a 20K roll, give or take. Um, and I think I went to the game with like 5,000, was in for all of it. Uh, so I have like 5K in front of me. Um, I get into a very fortunate spot where I run aces into kings and I hold, uh, get myself up a little bit over 10,000. And the game was ran by this guy, Mike the Greek. So uh, very wealthy, seedy guy. Who knows how he came across it? I mean, the game is literally populated by restaurant owners. Uh, Do you ever you know, think about like how many hitmen and like hired killers? Like there was a retired hitman of- in the game, Blairsville Johnny. <laughs> Blairsville Johnny was very open about the fact that he was a retired hitman. He was in his like late sixties and you know, he would just reminisce about the people that he killed. And like, it was just no big deal to him. It was just, you know, a Tuesday. I I will never forget. Sorry. This is another tangent, but you just sparked something in me. These two guys were going at it at commerce and I'll never forget this because it was like late at night. And like the one guy kind of mumbled over under his breath, like, Basically, it was like, if this wasn't my hometown, you'd be fucking done. And and yeah. it was like stone-faced, and I was like, my blood just went cold. I was like, holy fuck. Like, I believe this guy that like... Yeah, it, for sure. It, whew. Anyway. For sure. So, so yeah, we're playing like this nine-handed game where Mike the Greek is is the runner. Again, no idea how this guy came into his millions. I'm sure it was CD. Uh, there's a retired hitman in there there are a few restaurant owners there's bookies there you know everything but there's there's no professional poker players so i'm already sitting with you know i've i've basically increased my bankroll by 25 percent, and i'm still sitting with it so i now have a third of my net worth on the table uh and this hand happens where i think i open like pocket sixes from latish position maybe like low jack uh and i was in the either the seven or the eight seat and Mike was in the nine. And uh, there was this other guy, Tony. Tony G. He was the sweetest man on earth. Uh, he ran a beverage company. Like, he did all the, the beverage lines for uh, stadiums and stuff. So very wealthy, but, like, couldn't play cards for shit. Uh, just the nicest guy on earth. And he was across the table from me. So he was, like, either in the two or the three. Anyway, this hand happens where I open sixes. Mike three bets me pretty large. Like something I've seen, you know, I open to to maybe a hundred, uh, probably even a little big, whatever, and he makes it like nine hundred. <laughs> yeah, oh, I call two thousand five, yeah, ten twenty games, know, standard nine nine x yeah. three bet. Yeah, of course we're gonna peel. Like we're you know, in there, whatever. Uh, and it comes like nine seven five, two of a suit. Um, I check, 
Greek bet's huge. I call uh, River, or turn is like uh, an offsuit deuce. I check. He bets huge again. I call River is uh, like an offsuit jack. I check and he rips. And like, this is my case money. I have third pair to the board in a three bet pot. And I'm like thinking for a long time. And I, I'm like talking to him, you know, and this guy is just a fucking walking pillbox. And I just know, I just know, man. It's, I, I just know, you know, this guy looks like he's about to die in his seat. Like he literally looks like he's going to kill over. And finally I was just like, all right, I call. And he shows queen eight of clubs, which was a flop gut shot flush draw that misses. And he goes, you're good. And Tony jumps up out of his chair. He's like, holy shit. That is the greatest call I've ever seen in my entire. You had to have seen his cards. And oh, no. Greek, Greek is a little bit blind. And, you know, sometimes we'll peel his cards pretty high. Yeah, but he's, he's in, in the, the nine. nine. How, yeah, how could... but, like, I'm, I'm in proximity. I'm, like, in the eight or uh... seven, you know? And, like, he just keeps going on with his tail. Like, meanwhile, this is the biggest pot I've ever won in my life, right? I just won a 20K pot. I literally just doubled my bankroll. Uh, and I'm just like, shut the fuck up, Tony. Like, I don't, this guy could have me killed. Blair's little Johnny. Right across, <laughs> yeah. right me. I'm sure he knows a guy. <laughs> and he knows that I got 20K right here. Like, right, we just right, chop right. up the money. Yeah, you know, there's an armed guard at the door who's going to escort me to the car and maybe just put, it, put one in the back of my head. I don't know what the hell's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like the the session weans on like the game. He, Mike quits, uh, and the big draw to Mike was that they're. I won that pot with aces, the ten k pot, and I got back like ninety four hundred. So like they're just taking a handful out of the pot in the rake. <laughs> yeah. But the big draw was that Mike put that back into play. You know, he was always in the game. So he quits. The game breaks shortly thereafter. I go home. Uh, I get an invite, not from him obviously, but from somebody else to to the game in two days. And I come, and they're nine handed already. He's like, "Sorry, we're full, but you'll be next up." Somebody else comes, they make it 10-handed for. Somebody else comes, they make it 11-handed for. Jesus Christ. Then somebody leaves, and they pull the chair. Another person leaves, they pull the chair. And I'm just realizing, like, I'm stonewalled out of this game forever. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I never got to play again. RIP to Mike. He he passed a few years ago. He was never really in good health. But uh, that was definitely probably one of the most nerve-wracking slash favorite memories I have uh, as far as a single session goes. I mean, that to me has to compare to like you know not not a million dollar win right because like just the differences in money but like you said when you first before you started playing poker like you'd never seen a thousand dollars much less won or lost it in a pot and back in those days like you know me my best day ever as an adult was like a 200 hundred dollar valentine's day at applebee's right i thought i was like fucking making bank and then i'm playing poker and winning like seven or eight hundred i mean this was significant to me this was like holy shit I won a thousand dollars in a day. Um, so yeah, like, fuck, that's what, like a 15 K win. Right. Um, that's huge. I mean, you, you think about it. I increased my bankroll by 75% in one (laughs) session. (laughs) Yeah. That was the one you needed. Yeah. So the opposite story from your favorite, favorite memory to least favorite, uh, story of your least favorite session you've played. I have a lot of these. One that really stands out. I made a blog about in 20, 17 i think uh we were testing this is before uh poker after dark had relaunched and carrie wanted to test a couple of different formats uh before they made a decision on what they were going to do because they they didn't want to do sit and goes again and so he brought this escalator format and we tested it out in ivy's room and it was supposed to be uh it was supposed to start at 100 200 and end at 501k uh it was going to be a 200 or sorry 200k buy-in with the option to load once for 200k Okay. So 
the lineup's pretty good. It's like JRB, Robel, um, Harry, Ozzy Matt, Bob Bright, myself, and one other fun player that I can't recall off the top of my head. So we're playing the 100, 200 level. And obviously everybody's straddling to make it two, four, because we're all sitting 200 K deep. Yeah. So it already becomes 100, 200, 400 immediately. And I'm doing well. Uh, I'm, I'm winning out of the gate. I'm trying to like strategize. Cause it's like, we're, we're, it's supposed to be a six hour session and we're switching stakes uh, every 90 minutes. So I'm like trying to strategize. like, you know, how much risk do I really want to take on at the one, two level? If I'm trying to, build a stack but like at the same token i don't want to use up my reload prior to getting to 501k because i think i'm a big winner in this lineup and like it's very important that i'm still around in the level where i can start to cash out mm -hmm. but none of that mattered because ozzy matt was just being ozzy matt and he just rocketed off his first buy-in without any hesitation <laughs> so he buys back in uh and i got a big chunk of it i'm already up like you know 100 150 something like that um he buys back in and before we even get to the official 2-4 level, he's broke again, right? So now uh, everybody's trying to make a decision of what to do because he is steaming and he's just sitting in his chair, not quitting, obviously, like demanding to be able to buy back in. Uh, he is just beside himself livid. He's like, you can't kick a gambler out whenever he's stuck. <laughs> and, all. and like, we're all pandering to Kerry. We're like, hey, man, like, we want to try this format out and all. But like, you know, maybe now's not the best time. Let's make... So it becomes this exception of like, I actually, I think it was already an exception. I think that we agreed to only doing one 200K buy and no reload. And then Matt went broke so fast. We're like, all right, well, I'll one. And then it became a thing of like, hey, you know, let's, let's let this guy get back in here. So eventually, like, we just decide we're not doing the escalator anymore and we're just going to play. Why not just have unlimited rebuys with the escalator? Um, why did you want to? I think the whole purpose is to merge it between tournament and cash. We mm. actually just filmed one. It, it's it's the current Poker After Dark that's being released weekly right now. It was mm -hmm. an escalator format. We started at fifty one and we ended at one two, um, with a ten k buy in. I think it's not great. Um, Doesn't sounds personally. weird. Sounds weird for cash that like people are busting out. Yeah. I mean, why not just run a sit and go if that's the plan? Right, and like nobody wants to play a fucking sit. <laughs> right so but no, nobody wants aussie matt who's steaming to not be able to buy back in no, either no. right so needless to say we let him buy back in we start playing three six which is mostly three six twelve um and eventually it gets bumped up to just like straight 501k harry's buried a million matt's down at least a million i'm up a million and you know i'm out of makeup and having like one of the best sessions of my life and now the game gets bumped up to 1K, 2K. Bright had left, and uh, I think Robo may have left. We're playing like five or six-handed in a lineup where I just estimate that I am making all of the money. And I run Kings into carries aces. I get set over set by Matt, and I run over pair versus over pair into carry again. Um, suddenly, I'm stuck 700,000 in the game. And it was just like, this is the most gutting thing I've ever gone. Like, I went from being like 800K out of makeup to almost a million in. And it was just so insanely gut-wrenching. Because you feel responsible, right? You feel like you did something wrong to go on a swing like that. But like, when you put it into reasonable terms, it's like we were playing 1K, 2K with sometimes a 4K 
straddle. And yeah, I probably had way too much exposure on the table. And I, I think that's ultimately what it was. It's like for myself, I didn't care, but I felt like my backers were going to be upset because I didn't protect the win and just like get out of there. But at the same token, it's like if I got invited to a 1K, 2K game tomorrow with this lineup and you had the caveat of both Carrie and Matt being buried, wouldn't you risk a million dollars or $2 million to play? It's only 10 buy-in. Yeah. Five, five if there's a straddle. Uh, and I think like when you're able to reframe it that way to your investors, it, it obviously is like, hey, you did your best and you had some really unfortunate things happen. But the human side of it is just really hard to parse through because you do feel like there was some control that you could have taken along the way, be it either quitting and walking away or just like not losing the max when you get set over set 300 blinds deep, you know? Right. Like, I, I, like you said, it's 1K, 2K, and I'm sure you're playing very deep. You get set over set. Like, the thing is, if you just you know, I don't know what set you had in, in said situation where the, whether it's middle or bottom or whatever, but like if it's bottom and Aussie Matt has top two, then, and you don't get his stack, right? you're horribly upset with yourself because you're like, right. what the fuck was I doing? Like right. he's supposed to go especially, broke every time. Yeah. Especially in a spot where it's like, he's just going broke with like overpair. Right. Too. Yeah. Like, you know, you know it, it's just, it's unfortunate. It's unlucky, but it's poker. And ultimately it's three buy-ins with this yeah. obnoxious stake that y'all are playing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's, it's hard. It's hard for your brain to wrap around that uh, negative variance exist in some of the biggest money spots that you'll ever have. Right. And like, that's just going to happen to everybody throughout their career. There's always going to be that one defining moment where you're like, this is the biggest money spot that I'll ever have available to me. And I just ran bad. The Hummel busted me 43rd in the main event where he turns a two outer on me where I'm very likely to win most of his stack and just be chip leader. Instead, he becomes chip leader. I'm out 43rd. He wins $9 million. I win 200K, right? It's like, it's so hard not to focus on those, but like, if you play this game, it's going to happen. Yeah, and I would say that I would have much rather preferred you winning that WSOP looking with the, knowing the things that are kind of like circulating around nowadays. But, you know, I think for cash game players, it's a thing that doesn't happen as often as tournament players. Tournament players are insane to me. Like, they're just yeah. crazy. Like, yeah. I, I have multiple friends that are just like, yeah, I was playing a final table, like, over a million up top and, like, get it, get in all the money for, like, you know, 600K and EV and just lose. Like, lose yeah. my 70-30 and, you know, they finish in seventh and somebody else wins and gets the prestige and gets a name and gets all the stuff all the secondary benefits of like having a major title and it's just like holy shit nobody even knows your name <laughs> like nobody right. outside yeah, of yeah. like who's like not immersed in poker knows your name when like the alternative is like everybody knows your name and it's just like such a massive swing that like tournament players i don't know how they deal with that on like any basis like that is just an insane amount of, of yeah it's just an insane amount of variant insane, insane amount of just value on the line at the end of those tournaments yeah it's it's very difficult because it always shakes out the same way one person is going to get the lion's share right cash doesn't necessarily have to be that way if you're in the biggest game that you've ever played you're playing 10x the stakes you usually play and you're taking a massive shot you don't have to either win or go broke right you could just blend in 
and uh, you know just recoup a little bit of whatever your win rate is, uh, plus or minus. But yeah, for for MTT guys, it's just like basically you're just building up a collection of opportunities, and then you're just letting the cards fall as they may. Yeah, right? hopefully so like, you cash. All in. right, I'm gonna put myself. Yeah, I'm gonna put myself in a spot where I'm gonna final table with seven figures up top ten times, and out of those ten, I'll run well at some some frequency, uh, and I'll run bad at some frequency, and you know hopefully it at least shakes out to somewhere around what my my neutralized EV should be in those 10 collective spots. But, you know, most of the names we know just sun run in those spots. They just like win nine out of 10 or they top three, nine out of 10. And some of it's a byproduct of leveraging their skill, but the other half of it is just like getting insanely lucky in the moments that matter. Yeah, running good. Like I, I watched the, the WSOP final table where like Stu Unger won maybe the first or second time. And it was like, Oh, he's like gotten it in bad three times and just yeah. like ginned it every time. And yeah. it's like, you grow up thinking like, dude is like invulnerable and invincible and just like the best person that's ever walked the face of the earth. But it's like, Oh yeah, he ran good to get himself those titles even back in the eighties. And like, I don't care what anybody says over the course of a lifetime. It is very hard for variants to run even for an MTT player playing in giant events, like even a cash player in, in live events, like there just aren't enough hands. I mean, the fact of the matter is whether you're talking about poker business, uh, entrepreneurship, even if you're talking about like, uh, social popularity or, uh, finding the one or, you know, becoming a celebrity or whatever the case may be, all of these spectrums, they're all built off of survivorship bias. Everybody that we adorn as being worth something, is a survivor that uh, is heavily biased based on the amount of positive variance they took on. So it's like for every one of them, there's a hundred others that didn't get the the positive boost and just fell in the cracks. Yeah. I, I, that's just, that's just life. And poker is uh, oh, man. Po- poker is very brutal. Very, very brutal in that way. Not a meritocracy. That's for sure. I had a, a, a Lucy, an MTT online MTT player came on the podcast just a few weeks ago and told me that like she once had a thousand buy-in downswing in MTTs. And I was just like, how does she not retire? She did retire. Yeah, you <laughs> she, have she, to. she got back to even like it took a year and a half. And that did? yeah, well, I mean, online, online mass multi-tip yeah, yeah, writers, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I was just like, wow, like people come to me in the cash streets where it's like they're on a 15 buy-in downswing and their brain is melting down because they don't know what they're doing wrong. And like, she's like, yeah, I went on a thousand buy-in down. I was like, I could- Actually, my- the more I think about it, that's not that bad. Like if you're playing 109s and you go on a 100K downswing, like, sure. I can't All even comprehend that. A thousand buy-in downswing. Holy and shit. Just like, rip off the Sunday million and life is good. Yeah, then, then you're good to go after that. Jason, tell me about presence. Why did you think presence was the missing weapon in the arsenal of poker players? So everyone's a mindset champion when they're running great, right? But when you're getting crushed day after day and you haven't booked a win in forever and the confidence is just gone and you're trying to do this thing that you read about in a book or someone told you about being logical and being happy that the money went in good when all you really want to do is cry and hit something at the same time, like how are you supposed to be logical in that moment but that's the only moment when you really need it what you need in that moment isn't mindset you've already read all the mindset books and you already know what you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to do what you actually need in that moment is presence 
presence is the ability to connect the dots between who you want to be and how you can actually be that person when you need it most. So let's cut to the chase, right? Like, how do you do it? How do you stay more present when you're at the poker table? Well, you get there by first deciding that you want more, right? That you want to grow your intuition, that you want to create more flow in your life, and that you want to reach your full potential as a player and as a person. And once you get there, you can start trying out some of the exercises and practices that I've put together. If it feels good, if you're enjoying it, you can keep going. Right? And if you keep going long enough, eventually you'll find that you're just playing at really high levels, that you feel good with low stress, and you're enjoying your experience a lot more, not just at the table, but away from it as well. I personally would love to have as much presence as I possibly can in my day-to-day life. And if you, the listener right now, wants to add some presence to your game, visit pokerwithpresence.com. Join Jason Sue's email newsletter and then schedule a free consult with the master of presence himself. One more time, that's pokerwithpresence.com. Could you tell me a, a poker lesson you've learned from a dark teacher or a bad experience, basically? Can I be my own? You can, actually. You can be your own dark teacher. I actually think that this is maybe a little bit meta um to be fair like i I just haven't had the luxury of having poker teachers i I actually said this i was talking to somebody about this yesterday and it came up she was telling me how her parents held her to such uh high standards that you know they basically cracked the whip as far as schoolwork went and you know would would teach her lessons that weren't even on the curriculum yet like oh you're reading at a third grade level here's uh, a book meant for a sixth grader like you're gonna learn and uh she was like telling me about the process homework and stuff like that and i it dawned on me i was like you know i've never had someone in my life help me with homework like never ever i I was just responsible from day one right from first grade on it was just one of those things where it was like this is my world and whether i sink or swim is totally up to me nobody's gonna be there to pick me up and i feel like do you think it had anything to do with like being a smart kid and being capable and like able to take care of yourself well the irony is that she's probably more intelligent than i am but yes for sure i mean as a kid like your mom your dad yeah it was also just a byproduct of like need right like i just didn't have adults in my Mm -hmm. life that that could facilitate that yeah um but yeah for sure if i if i wasn't somewhat above average in in those realms i would have just sunk right i'm not trying to imply that uh, everybody has sink or swim moments and they swim because of resiliency or, or stick to or anything like that. It's like, no, nah, if I was below average intelligence and I was stuck in that, I would have failed period. There's yeah. No, no overcoming that. I just kind of since I see like, like myself, I, I didn't never had help with homework either. Really? Like I was just basically, uh, effectively looking back on it. Now I, I raised myself yep. and I think, the major reason was because I was pretty self-sustainable from an early age. Like I didn't get in trouble. I made okay, passable grades. Um, And because I just was pretty self-sustainable, it was like, okay, (laughs) my mom's like, you're good. We don't have to worry about you. Um, We're going to do our our other stuff. And then like, it wasn't until later on that I realized like, fuck man, I wish I would have been pushed. I wish that I would have had somebody holding me to the fire to gain responsibility. And so that I wouldn't have been this like 20 year old idiot that knew nothing about the real world at all. And basically made up 
shit ton of mistakes and had to figure life out on my own. But, yeah, um, I feel the opposite. I feel very thankful for it. Um, just like hearing her recount her experience, like you could tell that there's some animosity and resentment there. That's the other and side also, of the coin. <laughs> yeah. And also it's just like, um, I think it, it pushes you out of uh, some, not self-reliance necessarily, but like it pushes you away from embracing what you're best at right so like she's a massive intellect but like it becomes difficult to embrace your intelligence side whenever there's such a hyper focus on it mm-hmm. um and i was just kind of free to do as i wished which was nice because i may have been naturally intelligent but i wasn't naturally gifted when it came to athletics and i poured my heart and soul into it right which is what leads me to now the dark teacher because i poured my heart and soul into something that uh wasn't a natural talent of mine Obviously, the the positive feedback loop was seeing the massive improvements, right? The gains and being able to achieve maybe beyond my own personal ceiling or what I thought my estimated ceiling was. You know, coming out of high school, um, I was determined to play college baseball. And all of my coaches told me, like, you may be able to walk on as a first baseman, but like you have no shot at pitching. And uh, by the time I got to college, it was just very abundantly clear that like, not only was I going to play, but I was going to pitch. Um, and, you know, a lot of that was just a byproduct of kind of a fucky mentality of like, I see it another way. Um, but also it was, it was just a byproduct of like putting in the work and, and being disciplined enough to go after it. But because that was where my mind was and because all of my validation was coming from the positive feedback loops, when the negative feedback loops happened, uh, the rug would pull out from underneath me. So in college, I had a coach who was hardly supportive, right? Quite the opposite. He was hypercritical. He was very pedantic about his criticisms. You know, like uh, he was the kind of guy that when you were on the mound in a one-two pitch or in a one-two count, if you missed your spot, you'd just hear, ah, oh, come on, right? And like there was no forgiveness for walking somebody. There was... You, you just couldn't really operate within the lines of playing the cat and mouse game with the hitter, right? It, it was very much a brute force mentality of like, we're going to make him beat us on our best pitch. And your sole job out there is just to control that pitch and throw strikes. And it's like, you know, there's some validity to that, but like it's level one thinking, right? Like there's way more going on between a pitcher and a, and a hitter that, I can't just say like, all right, man, I'm going to pipe it down the middle all day long and you guys are just going to tee off on me and hopefully my fielders are going to back me up because, you know, you're only supposed to hit 350, which means 65% of the time you're out. And that's that's a win for me kind of thing. It's like, no, we got to get better. We want them to hit 200 off of us, right? That's how teams are, that's how success is built. No, no shock, we were fucking terrible. We didn't win, <laughs> right? Yeah. We won four games my sophomore year. Like, shocker that nobody's playing well for a guy like this. Um, but it really forced me into uh, a level of self-actualization that I probably wasn't ready for at 19, but I couldn't be more thankful for it. So it, it weighed on me badly. Uh, going into the sophomore year, I was projected as like being a top... Well, I, was, I was projected as being a conference pitcher. Let's not rank it one through four, but um, I was going to be one of the starting four in the rotation. And I busted my ass to get there. I been cut my freshman year from my first school uh it's now suddenly i'm getting like votes for captaincy and i'm i'm projected to be a, a starter and everything else and with every single piece of like 
it wasn't even it wasn't even negative feedback or criticism, right? It was just like essentially almost making fun of me. That that wasn't what was taking place, but it was literally just like disapproval of whatever action I took. With every one of those that piled up, I performed worse and worse and worse and worse. And like I just couldn't overcome that that lack of validation, right? I needed support. I needed somebody to pat me on the ass. It's like when you come from that background of like you don't have anybody to lean on. And you finally find yourself in a vulnerable place where you can't necessarily rely solely on yourself because you're not that talented, right? You need that support system. I didn't have it. And fortunately, I wanted this bad enough that I swallowed my pride and I went and saw a sports psychologist that somehow we had on campus for free. <laughs> That's uh, pretty nice. It was amazing. It, it was absolutely game-changing. Um, it took me over half the season to do it. And I think at that point, I was like, one and four. I finished the season like three and six, maybe. But the following year, I think I went on to to have like a five and one record or something along those lines. Like it was just such a massive snowball effect where it was very clear that I was letting outside forces uh, be kind of like a negative teacher, if you will. It, yeah. it was teaching me to lean into the negative validation. Lead into the negative validation. That's uh... great validation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's. There's a lot of science now in today's day and age of positive reinforcement dramatically outperforming negative reinforcement over and over and over again. But I think that like it's so weird how far the world has come in just our lifetimes where like, you know, you said you never had like a, a poker coach or a poker teacher. Like I had friends that played poker, but like there was nowhere to go. How, how do you hire a poker coach? What, what about a, like a mental game coach? What the, what the hell is that? Like right. you just deal with your own shit. Like don't be a baby, pull yourself up. You lost yeah. half your net worth, like move on. Um, yeah. Buy in the yeah. next day. Like it, it's just, we didn't have those resources. Right. I, and I think if it wasn't for that experience, I would have never made it. Uh, I think that something would have happened that would have hurt my feelings. That would have made me feel less than uh, that would have invalidated me somewhere along my poker path. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the five or six times that I went poker broke, it would have been enough to just like cripple me. But instead, I already had this system built in place because I'd experienced once in baseball. So it's like in this instance, poker now is that coach saying you're not good enough. You're not performing well enough. You can't do this. Your ceiling is too low, yada, yada, yada. And like, you know, it became a lot easier to take a step back and say, like, let's let's look at this logically. How much of this is variance? How much of this is me overextending myself? Where can I take control and actually get better and things like that? And, you know, it made it made the self-actualization process in my mid-20s whenever uh, I was suffering financial swings and trying to figure out what the fuck I was going to do with the rest of my life a lot easier and a lot more calming because I already had a template in place where it was like, okay, I know where to start. I, I know that I feel invalidated by this thing that I'm pursuing, and that's on me. I yeah, that is so big. Yeah, yeah, that is, I mean, that's a greatness bomb, right? Like mo most people, including myself, especially when I was, you know, 21 through 25 years old, your identity gets wrapped up in playing poker and being a poker player and being successful, right? Because you tell people, you reinforce it. I am a professional poker player. This is what I have done. You're one, you're two, you're three, you're four. And when poker shits on your head, like it, always inevitably does um you start losing your sense of place in the world you start losing your identity and it's really really difficult to overcome that lost sense of self and so i can't imagine just how well 
those that lesson served you throughout your poker career. Yeah, yeah, completely invaluable. Um, and I think that it's one that you know you're saying like how cyclical things are now. All of a sudden, everybody has a coach for everything, and you know, positive reinforcement clearly outperforms negative and stuff. You have to strike that balance, right? You have to be self-sustaining and be able to self-rely to some degree rather than just leaning on a hundred different coaches. And you have to be able to absorb negative critiques and invalidation feelings and things like that, rather than just solely getting positive pats on the back and participation trophies. We haven't figured that out yet. We just, <laughs> we're, we're just stuck in the constant pendulum swing where it's like, this is clearly not working despite the fact that we've tried it for a while. So let's swing way to the other pole and try that. And it seems like we just, as a, as a species or a race, we very rarely find the middle ground and, and just, you know, outshine. But that's also why, like, you know, there are one percenters because they figured the fuck out. Yeah. Fader, Fader Holtz, right? Like there, there are people that are just, yeah, that are just next level. And it's hard. I, I think that like being an emotional creature and being impacted by these things on an emotional level, I think that has just a major impact as it relates to, you know, the feedback, whether it be positive or negative, how you internalize it, how you use it. Do you use the negative feedback as fuel to surge forward? Do you get complacent because of too much positive feedback? Um, it's tough. Like you said, it's really tough striking that balance. And it's a thing that I think about a lot as a poker coach is like, whenever my guys sit in a session, my job is to figure out what they did wrong. However, my job is not to only focus on everything they did wrong so that I totally destroy their sense of confidence and self-worth so that they start performing at a lower level the next time. So it's like, you can't just destroy them for the things they do wrong. You also have to talk about the things they do right and the things they do well and the good decisions that they make. Um, It's just about building, you know, a resilient human being and not just totally breaking them because humans are breakable. Their confidence can be broken and then they can perform at a much lower level than they ever have before when that happens. We drastically underestimate the impact of one single person, like either on someone else or uh, in, in our own particular lives. Like if I've learned anything about communication, it's just like, it's all about the messaging. So it's all about how you package it. And uh, it's all about how cognizant you are to how much weight your message carries. Right. So you can't just speak flippantly to somebody who is hanging on your every word and taking it all at face value, right? You can't just like be very short and just be like, that sucks. You're terrible, right? Because they hear that and it cements in their brain. And uh, conversely, like it's, it's not worth your time, effort, or uh, energy to put out a very deep, elaborate, nuanced piece of feedback to somebody who doesn't respect you or give a shit about what you have to say. Uh, and social media is like the iconic platform to demonstrate this twitter specifically right it's like um it's 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 such a lose-lose so like my 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 audience in particular is probably split 50 50 between people who follow me to hate me and follow me because they you know uh respect me in some some higher level or think that i have something to offer and it doesn't matter which of those messages i choose right i could choose something deeply nuanced that i think holds a lot of value and some fraction of my audience is going to see that. And then the rest of it is just going to dunk all over it and say, like, you're a, a pseudo intellectual and you're phony and all this other stuff. On the other hand, I can kind of like be 
the the guy that I was growing up in a poor rural town surrounded by people who are not well to do and not super intelligent and everything else. And I kind of bro out a little bit like I did throughout all my athletic years. And that same group that liked the first message is just going to call me immature, childish, and tell me to grow up and, you know, be more mindful of the message that I'm putting out there while the flock of uh, trolls and, and everybody else who's enjoying the, the platform for the lols is going to be like, oh, I didn't even know you were funny. <laughs> and it's just like, you can't win for losing. So all you can be is authentic, you know? Yep. Uh, but, but on a more personal level, we all, we all have a hierarchy of where our circle uh, ranks. And there are people within it that we just hold in much, much, much higher regard. And if they're unaware of that, their messaging um, can be incredibly damaging. Yeah, for sure. And it actually, I don't know that I've talked about this publicly. I hope I haven't. If so, the podcast listeners will just have to listen to the story again. But I did a, I, I was trading coaching sessions with people because I like learning how other people teach and how other people coach. And I think there's a lot of value in just trading sessions with other high level coaches. And they are a much more, they come to poker from a much more theoretical base where it's heavy theory, heavy PIO, all of that sort of thing. Lots of solves, lots of GTO concepts. And we were breaking down a hand that I had played that I played pretty well, actually. It was like, basically, it was zone poker, 500, the limit on ignition. I opened the button with 8-9 suited. The big blind three bets me. I call the flops 10-7 deuce. Uh, the big blind bets, they make a large bet. Um, I decide to call because I feel like I have a pure calling range there. I'm not raising like any sets or any two pair. So basically just pure calling. And then the turn was like a tray of diamonds. I had a nine of diamonds. So I had open ender and a flush draw. And I remember saying like in my plan, explained that if they bet I'm shoving and then they checked and I was very much expecting a bet. Like I was expecting them to range bet the flop and then follow up on the turn on like 10, seven deuce tray mm -hmm. and they checked and I was kind of thrown for a loop. Like I only had 15 seconds to react. I end up, uh, checking back because I talked a lot about on the video that like, I didn't want to get check raised all in. I felt like, I felt like he was going to barrel here a lot. And when he checks, I felt like he could be trying to get the last bet in, which I didn't want to happen. So I checked back and then the river's an ace and he leads small. So maybe like, 23% of the pot. And I basically was just like, yeah, ace is the most over bluff card in the deck. Like he's going, he's basically obligated to bet here. So I'm just going to raise and I raised and he folded. So pretty, pretty simple hand. And so in our coaching session, we break down the hand and like, I verbalized my thought process. I talked about all the things I was thinking about. And then like, he showed his way, right. Which was like heavy in theory, which basically came to most of the same conclusions that I came to just logicking my way through the hand. But yep. like the specificity that that he had for each of the reasons, I was like, it kind of blew me away. I was like, wow, like that is a level of detail that like my thought process was lacking and it kind of made me fall apart. Like even though we both came to the same conclusion, I came to it from a very different way, which I think makes sense considering how I'm constructed just as a human being. But yeah, it, it shattered my confidence for about a month. It was like, wow, like the game's progressing and evolving and people are just, you know, I've fallen behind. I haven't been studying. I, I haven't been investing my energy into learning, like having the theory just down pat. 
Um, and then maybe a few months after that, like there was a hand that went down and it, I can't even remember the hand, but basically like I suggested like calling the flop and leading the turn because intuitively it felt good, <laughs> which is like a, a funny thing to say, but like intuitively it felt like that was going to capture a lot of EV and the same coach was like breaking the hand down. And I told him like, man, have you ran the solve for leading the turn? And it was just like outright dismissed, right? It was like, no, yeah. like that's not really, that's not a thing. And I just kept thinking about it. And like after after the call, I was like, hey man, can you run, like run this, like show it to me, show me the result. And so he runs it and it turns out that it was a good exploit that was like pretty cool to find um, just from like thinking about the hand. And what I realized at that moment was like, Brad, you're fucking good at this game. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like you, you, you just approach it in different ways than other people. And that's okay. Right. Like it's okay to not approach it in the same way. And like, once I kind of like suggested my idea, it got shot down instantly. And then I made them run the solve for the spot. And he was like, holy shit, you might actually be onto something here. I realized like, okay, like you're, you're good. You can put yourself back together. There's more than one way to skin a cat, but, um, I get through that a lot. Like maybe every six months or so, especially being surrounded by a lot of young talent now with like mm-hmm. Landon. Um, and it, it's a very good, healthy thing because he's not, he's not the type of person who will just like look up to me so much that he takes everything I say with a grain of salt. Uh, we're all holding each other like accountable to kind of show your work. And that's something that's a little bit newer in maybe the last five years in poker because we have a methodology to do so now. I go through a lot of similar experiences where I maybe am like playing and thinking about a spot even very correctly, but I'm not thinking about it nearly as detailed. And uh, it's, it's kind of like, or, or maybe even a better example is like, I'll mess up a sizing in the sense that like the sizing I choose is a low frequency play and it's fine. It's, it's literally fine. The candidate you chose is fine. The sizing is fine. All of it's fine. But the problem is, is I'm not doing it at a low frequency, right? So mm-hmm. it's like I'm not I'm not adhering to the more preferred sides in that spot. And it will just like shatter me for a second where it's just like, I don't understand because intuitively everything that allowed me to arrive at this makes sense. It's also being demonstrated that it's fine at equilibrium. Um, you know, where where is all this getting convoluted? And what's really bothersome is, or, or what makes me feel less than, I guess, is that I'm doing this from a brain solve effectively, right? Like I'm working through heuristics that I know are valued in game theory. I'm working through my knowledge of math and uh, you know, the, the constructs of poker and everything else. And I'm natively coming up with pretty good responses. They're looking at piles of fucking data. And that, that rocks me to my core because it's like, we're only going to acquire more and more and more, more data. Right. So like the essence of the game is, is kind of, shifting and it's not in a direction that like i enjoy it was once an art now it's turning into a science and it's not that i'm not scientific it's not that i don't enjoy the science it's that i like the i like the pioneer aspect of discovering new nodes and being the first to implement something that's like a little bit out there right so i I think your example is incredibly good because it's just the demonstration of macro versus micro thinking Right? And in a lot of ways, it's a demonstration between um, how you logic through spots in live versus like how you execute online. And I think that we both need one another. 
in a lot of ways, the macro thinkers are going to be the ones who discover new theory, who discover like uh, new elements to strategy, right? In, in a big way, they're going to be the ones that evolve it uh, big picture wise. But it's the data analysts, it's the micro uh, analysis, it's the, the executioners that are going to be the ones who make it a thing and print all the EV in, in a large way from it. You know, I, I say basically like, I say this all the time, that the community is built of two camps, game theorists and practical executioners, right? And they're not the same, right? It's just like in the, in the world of science, right? You have the scientists who are out there hypothesizing, and then you have the, the, the guys running the trials. You have the, the people who are in the, in the thick of it all that are analyzing the data. And they don't really cross paths all that often, right? They just exchange results between one another mm-hmm. or, or, or a little bit of information between one another and come to conclusions. Yeah, I think at that hand, like that was another question of like, when I raised the river, it was like, we talked about sizing and precision of sizing. And it was like, he's like, why did you choose this size? And my only response was because that's the size I would choose when I had value. <laughs> like that was like, I, I bluffed with the same size that I would choose when I have value. And like, then it was like, is there a more efficient size? And, you know, I, I just think of like, it's kind of like growing up, you know, I think that poker is you and I are kind of like in this childhood state of like, it's magic. And like, it's so complex and big. We love discovering new things and like being innovative. And like, now it's just shrinking. And it's like, when you're a kid, you can be anything in the world. And then you realize when you get older that you can't and you're, <laughs> the possibilities yeah. are much more limited than you once thought. It kind of removes the magic of the situation. I, I think that's probably what you and I, you know, are, are probably dealing with. Yeah, I think that that's true. But I also think that like, you know, uh, in the same realm that doesn't disqualify us in any way, shape or form. Just Hell like no. 21. Yeah. And you realize you have to fucking be an adult. Like it's kind of the same thing. It's like, yeah, okay. So like, I'm not going to be the one credited for big bet sizes or limping or, or like any of these things, but like, gonna make a lot of money in this game still yeah have an 18 year head start personally I, i'm at peace with being a practical executioner i i think that's that's what makes me feel comfortable just as a poker player like you put me in there i'm going to execute i'm going to logic my way through spots and maybe i won't find the most efficient line but i'm going to find a damn good line like I, i'm going to find a great line maybe not the perfect one Oh man, I don't even know how long we've been going because we went an hour before the podcast and I don't even know when the podcast actually started. But uh... <laughs> look, I totally get it. You feel like being a lone wolf in your poker journey has hamstrung your ability to realize your full potential. So I'm about to give you a golden opportunity to plug into a supportive tribe that will be the poker family you've always wished you had. How much money would you give for one hour of interactive group coaching led by myself, Coach Thomas, and occasionally past guests of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast? For now, and this will absolutely change at some point in the near future, the price of admission to the Live Poker Power Hour is 100% free. All you've got to do to get your invite is head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com and hop on the VIP newsletter. No more excuses, no more procrastination. It's time to take action and put yourself in position to turn your poker dreams into reality. I hope to see that beautiful face of yours in just a couple of days.
okay, we'll, we'll go to like the more lightning round. We'll, we'll wrap it up since my, my throat's hurting and I, I don't know how long I've been talking. Um, what's a purchase you've made in the last year that's been ultra impactful to your poker game? Shockingly, I just didn't buy anything during the pandemic. <laughs> like I just went into hoarding mode. Uh, Bitcoin, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's actually probably true. Like uh, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin at the end of 2020 uh, at like 15. And now it's like 50. So I have the availability to play bigger. Yeah. Like, I don't have to sell for 100, 200 anymore or 200, 400 even. I remember when Detox Crew came and Bitcoin had splattered to around 3,500, I believe, at the beginning of the pandemic. And like there was a big discussion about Bitcoin and like all the talk was that it was going much, much lower from there. And <laughs> that wasn't the case. That was that was the stone bottom, I believe. Like it yep. it powered up the next few days, like forty five or five K and then just went on like this unstoppable run over the past uh, actually the run has only been like the past four or five months, right? Yeah, maybe even less. Um I think I bought most recently on New Year's Eve at like twenty K. <laughs> um so yeah, like what, two and a half months? Uh it, it's more than doubled. Yeah. Do you ever just like just go to sleep at night, you wake up and you're like, ha, ah, this is, that was a good, that was a good sleep cycle that I used there because Bitcoin just went up 5% yeah, overnight. Six figures in my sleep. That's <laughs> yeah. That's, that's pretty good. Um, what's a poker related thing that other people rave about that hasn't worked for you? Yo, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think PO is an incredibly useful tool. Mm -hmm. But I think it is very barbaric in what we're capable of with solvers. I think the next iterations that we're seeing uh, on the precipice of being launched, like GTO Check, are a thousand x more powerful. What the is GTO Check? Uh, so it's you know finding equilibrium. I know they have a channel. YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. Um, he partnered with the Simple Suite, uh, so like Simple Preflop, Simple Postflop, um, and they are releasing a new solver called GTO check. And basically what it is, is it does a lot of meta analysis. So um, all those heuristics that we were kind of talking about uh, that we utilize in our logical thinking, the solver can actually display visually, right? So it will display like blocking power. It will display, uh, they have this qualifier called EV regret, which I think is genius. Basically what it does is it compares uh, in essence, the likelihood of, I don't want to say mistake propensity because that's not really what solvers calculate, but more so just like um, what the probability is of you losing EV on a future decision if you take the highest EV decision right now. Okay. Right? Or, or maybe not even the highest EV decision, but basically like uh, let's say two decisions are pretty close in EV and you choose B. Um, What's the likelihood of you losing EV on a future street by choosing B instead of A? Uh, so it's kind of that thing. So like, say you decide to just like pure call uh, your top set in a spot where like it's supposed to raise like 25% of the time. How much EV regret is there in pure calling versus actually mixing in the spot? And I think that that's like a really profound practical utilization of the solving tool because at the end of the day, 
uh, we've gone through this ebb and flow where we're not data analysis by trade in this community. So we don't necessarily know what the fuck we're looking at and we're trying to parse through it and figure it all out in real time. And we went through this ebb and flow where it was like, okay, this will demonstrate to us, you know, going back to like 2015, it's like, okay, this will show us what line to take. And we just do it, right? We just mimic it. And then it became like, oh, well, everything's a mix. So like we have to start randomizing and doing all these things to mix our lines and ensure that we're protected and balanced, yada, yada, yada. And now we're rising back up to nobody knows anything and it's impossible for them to exploit you because they're not taking proper counters at, at, at the fact that like you're implementing a pure strategy, right? So like if, if you're just bucketing according to the incentives of your hand and you're saying like, well, middle set unblocks top pair. So I'm going to be more aggressive with middle set and more passive with top set. And if you just allocate that way practically, you're no longer mixing now what you do with your top and your middle sets, uh, and you're giving up very little. And like that's what EV regret basically demonstrates is practical range splitting as opposed to mixed range splitting. Being able to measure that is just like at the end of the day, an absolute fucking game changer, especially due to the applications for live. Yeah, that's that is pretty huge it's crazy how like pio didn't get me i guess in the same way that it got a bunch of people but i think that here's the thing like just the pie the whole pio model right like i did an experiment and i've talked about this a couple times on the pod but basically what i did was i never raised preflop okay like stick with me (laughs) like i i decided i'm going to I'm going to explore my curiosity playing 200 no limit. I'm never going to raise. I'm never going to three bet. I'm going to call everything preflop, right? Because in my sick mind, I thought, well, if I play the same ranges and I never three bet, like I don't have a limp raise range. I don't have a raising range. Like I kind of have all the overpairs and like all the sets and all the straights. And I was like, how does this, like, how is this going to work post flop? Right? So basically I just, I tried it out. Like I Googled it actually to see if like anybody had ever tried it before, before I did it. And there was just like one, two plus two thread where, you know, somebody suggested not that, not the extreme version that I did, but a similar, like only pure limping strategy from under the gun playing live or something. And like, it was just pages of everyone shitting on them and telling them they're, they're an idiot and they're stupid. And what I realized was, you know, I did it for three or 4,000 hands. I won money at the end of the day. There's some obvious flaws in the strategy that, you know, could be upgraded. But what I learned was that all we're doing as poker players, when you have a preflop strategy, it's just a model that you use and you believe to be better than the model of your opponents. And when I would limp, I realized they did not have a great model for playing against a good player that limps. Right. And their model this, just automatically fucking broke. Yeah, yeah, I did this for a decade in tournaments. Yeah, it just broke their model straight away. They didn't know what to do. Limped. Yeah, I would solely limp, and I would find myself in spots where like people would be jamming too lightly and then getting reshoved on by a real hand, and now I have aces. And it's just like I got to win an extra entire stack because if I had just opened that reshover would have folded and i would have only stacked the yeah it's just like what we should have never garnered from a tool like po is that the game is more limiting right so like reducing strategic options based on data is nonsensical the opposite this tool now has the ability to demonstrate alternative strategies to us 
where the EV gain or loss is minimal at equilibrium. But in practice, the EV gain or loss is massive, right? It's huge. It's what you're saying. If they don't have a model to combat against a limp and they just start to make wild assumptions, like you would limp raise aces and you don't, or uh, you would open your good hands and you're limping too wide or whatever the case may be, whatever, they, whatever assumptions they plug into their model, already monkey wrench every single node on the game tree from that point forward if there's inaccuracy. Right, and exactly. And going to be inaccuracy. The, the inputs are wrong from the get-go, and so that just destroys everything moving forward. What, what was interesting was, like, I realized, like, if I raise under the gun playing six max, like, middle position is not supposed to, or the cutoff is not supposed to have a flatting range, right? It's like pure three better fold. Um, the button has a flatting range. But anyway, so the cutoff would never call if I open under the gun. It's either three better fold. And yet I found myself limping with the same exact range and the cutoff ISOing, putting in like six big blinds against the same range with a much weaker hand. And I, I just started realizing like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like it, it, it's a very hard strategy to execute because there's like a lot of donking, a lot of weird stuff that you need to do. But I just realized like, oh, they would never, they would never put in six big blinds with King 10 off if I would have opened under the gun and yet I I'm limping and they are and our ranges, you know, my range is exactly the same, but they're putting in more money with weaker hands. Right. Uh, I just, I, I just think that ultimately like it makes going back to what we were saying, like there are more frontiers to look into. There are more areas of curiosity that we can, we can explore that. I, I, I just think poker's a, a, such a fun, fascinating, cool game. And it, it's maybe it's, humans who just want to pigeonhole it into like only do x y or z in this spot every single time and it'll never end right because you're right the trend now is that everybody plays the same pre-flop range right like Mm -hmm. cutoffs don't flat uh you know they rebet x percent etc 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 but that's not actually what the game tree looks like that's what the truncated tree looks like for a simplification model humans who don't know any better right the 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 next wave will be the people who are courageous enough to say, fuck your pre-flop charts and start having a flatting range from every position because at equilibrium, it's a fucking myth, period. We just simplified it. We just said like, oh, I'm not going to complicate my pre-flop strategy by having both a three bet and a calling range from the cutoff when the EV loss of playing pure three bet is minimal, right? But the more complex of a strategy you're willing to implement, the more EV gain there is by the time you arrive at river. So the player who is implementing a three bet and a flat strategy from the cut is simply just going to have a greater path to, uh, to to winning their unfair share of EV by the end. Now, they also have a greater path to losing their unfair share of EV because there's more mistakes that they can potentially make by implementing a complex strategy. But if we were inputting a, an AI bot there, of course they'd have a fucking flatting range. Right? Sure, yeah. They'd be able to iterate it just executes. Mil- it, yeah, it's able to iterate a million times deeper into the game tree than we are with our brain, and it will just simply execute because it has no fucking emotion. I say this as somebody that has a course called Preflop Bootcamp that teaches a simplified optimal strategy. So <laughs> I just want to put that out there that like sure. I, I think that there is a place to start, and like until you kind of know the rules and know what's going on, that is what gives you the latitude to kind of break the rules and explore yeah. your curiosity. But you got to start somewhere, right? So yeah. anyway that was just an interesting thing that like I've done in the past year that I thought was pretty cool. And there was a lot of lessons there that if I had more time and wasn't, um, 
you know, running a business, I, I would love to explore. But unfortunately, I don't have more time. <laughs> I have much less time. Speaking of that very thing, what are some things you wish you said no to more often? Man, I don't say no to anything. And that's a problem. There are probably 20 podcasts I wish I didn't do just because actually I'm overstating that I, I had a, I enjoyed most of the podcasts I did, but there was definitely a handful where it was like, what the fuck are you doing? 500 <laughs> people are going to watch that. And it was a terrible interview. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of content we've done for like our YouTube page that I wish I would have said no to because like, it's so time consuming. Yeah. I, I mean, most of it, almost all of it actually is centric around or centered around self or why. Uh, I just think it's the nature of trying to grow your baby. It's hard to say no whenever you're in a space that you're trying to expand and you think that, you know, there's any sort of leveraging opportunity or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I think the vast majority of the the yeses I would take back are just being way too free with my time in this industry. Yeah. Time is a commodity. And, you know, speaking of like podcasts, I think we've been talking for like three hours here, right? <laughs> like we've been, we've been on the podcast for a while and, you know, it's, it's tough. Like you, you want exposure, you want to grow your brand, you want to do all of these things, but your resources are finite and there's a limited amount of hours in the day. And I think that like, for me, I would love to just create content with the same regular people, like on a regular basis that I know is like compelling, interesting, great to share. The, the, the listener learns a ton with, with all of that said, like, what's the, the opposite? What are some things you wish you had said yes to? more often but you just said you never say no to anything so maybe there's nothing there well no i do i i say no to too many social things for sure uh i have this like masochistic masochistic mindset where self-sacrifice is somehow like cherished <laughs> and yeah i i mean i just learned to snowboard last week mm -hmm. at 39 and i've probably had 25 opportunities to learn uh throughout the last 20 years and it's like, I had so much fun. I can't wait to do it again. I can't believe I said no as many times as I did. Um, so yeah, almost all of it probably revolves around just like social things where it's like, I wish I would have taken more trips. I wish I would have uh, said yes to more uncomfortable experiences that, uh, you know, it's just getting over the hump of a little bit of fear or trepidation or, or whatever the case may be. Um, What's going to happen to Saul for why if you're gone for three days? Like, <laughs> no, that's the problem. And, and that's what you convince yourself of. Right? Mm -hmm. You convince yourself that you're so fucking important to the project that if you just disappear for a small period of time, the whole thing crumbles beneath you. And sometimes that's true, but very rarely is that always the case. It, if you're running a decent business, that shouldn't be the case. Like, right. I, I hope that's not the case, right? Yeah. Um, it might be the case for me, but that's that's a whole other can of worms. But uh, <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's just easy. I guess it's low-hanging, easy fruit to just – when you're running a business, like I'm going to work 16 hours a day or 14 hours a day every single day. Like my off day is working seven hours just doing menial shit that I just couldn't bring myself to do on the other days that I was working right. 12 hours. You know, Find nobility in that, right? Uh, it, it, you, you create this sense of uh, self-worth where it's like nobody's doing this and I am and for that reason – like I'm noble and great deserve a pat on the ass where, you know, everybody else should be like, looked down on for not doing the same as I, you know, I think that, I think that I'm an idiot mostly 
as I outsource more and more things, I'm like, yep. I could have just outsourced this the whole time. What the fuck was I thinking? Like, why, why do I think that like I need to do X, Y, or Z when there's a perfectly good human being that's overqualified to do the same exact thing? Right. And like, it's just an undervaluing of my time, I think, and probably yep. your, your own time as well, where it's like- I think some of it's actually control too. Where it's yeah. Like, oh, it's, oh, for sure it's control. Yeah, you would rather have it 100% your way instead of 80% someone else's. Like if they can do it to 80% your competency, that's more than enough reason to just say, take it, right? But that extra 20% feels like it's worth way more than it is. Yeah, it's a control thing. Like you said, like my first 20 podcast episodes, I sent on my producer, he edited them, sent them back to me, and then I would re-edit every single one of them to my satisfaction. Yeah, 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 Um, yeah. And then at some point I just stopped, but... Yeah, it's sometimes you just got to let go. You know, you just got to yeah. let go of things and do the best that you can and realize that like that's actually a more preferred higher EV, more fulfillment, happier life path. Yeah, I mean like when you when you step back 5 10 years down the line, you're not going to look back and be like, "God damn it, I'm glad I created all the thumbnails for my YouTube page year 1." Mhm. It's just like they suck too and you could have just outsourced. <laughs> yeah, they're awful. And right. somebody else could have done it and you could have spent time doing other things like, you know, building your business exactly. actually. All right. A uh, couple more questions. Have you ever strongly believed something about poker only to reverse course later on? And if so, what led to that change? I mean, the answer is obviously yes. It's just a matter of if I can pinpoint exactly what it was. Uh, I think we all go through these cycles. You kind of have to. because Strategy just evolves so much now and so rapidly. Um, I think maybe, well, I know for a fact that there was a point early in my career where, uh, I was either so arrogant or was actually so much better than the people I was playing against that I can remember uttering, like, I don't even think position matters. <laughs> and, uh, the games I was playing that probably was true to some degree. It's like, well, they're playing 7% of hand. So it really doesn't matter what fucking position we're in, but obviously like that's simply not the case. And the more uh comp- competent people become the more critical position actually is. yeah i don't know i was gonna say even bad players like i've been pouring through yeah. mass data looking at fish and their loss rate facing c-bets in position and out of position and it like halves when they're in position compared to being yeah. out of position and yeah, this is like a rec- recreational player who's like not good at poker and like they're losing half as much when they're in position in the same exact spot as when they're out of position so like it just struck me as funny that like position is like just the the everything in this game like it's just everything yeah i think uh i don't know that my stance has really changed on this so much but i think that it's probably shifted a bit um but two things that i think have definitely at least evolved in my thinking is number one that preflop doesn't matter um i still think that that's true to some degree in the sense that, like, I don't think you gain very much by being insanely dialed in to pre. Like, oh, bro, you're opening 23.4% from the cutoff? Like, come on, man, it's only 22.8. You know, like, I don't think those extra candidates, one or two that you're adding there, are, are affecting your win rate all that much, especially if you're competent post. Now, obviously, the worse you are post-flop, the, the more important pre is. But if we're talking about, like, high-level strat. Uh, I don't think pre is hyper important, um, but I think it's more important than I used to give it credit for. And then secondarily, um, 
that small betting is uh, stupid. <laughs> um, I've definitely come around. I see, and you know what? It's it's me getting a taste of my own medicine, right? Like for everybody who's ever dismissed some sort of out there concept that I had, like limping exclusively in MTTs when sub thirty blinds, or um, you know playing big bet strategies uh, on flops, or uh, even pre flop, whatever. A lot of those concepts are coming to fruition now. Like uh, I've I've ranges right now that will show you what your limp strategy should be from 30 blinds down in MTTs. And uh, there are plenty of aggregate reports that we can sort that will heavily favor a 75% CBET size over 25%. But for me to dismiss that 25% is a thing is, uh, you know, kind of just me being as much of a contradiction as the same people who are saying my, my comparable strategy is bad absolutely and what's funny is I, I think it's kind of going the other way now like i've poured over 35 million hands these past couple of weeks and in many many instances i've just find over and over again that big bets in position outperform small bets by not an insignificant margin and it's just hilarious to me it's like everybody says CBET range, 30%. When I'm looking at the data and the data is telling me something totally different, that people are performing way worse facing larger sizing, it's like, oh, like it, it's just, it's interesting looking at the data and comparing it to like the conventional wisdom of poker players and realizing like there's a big, dis there's a big difference here. There's a big canyon in the middle between like what's actually true and what like is the agreed upon, you know, quote unquote truth of, you know, Twitter poker. Well, I think the big issue is that um, when a lot of these strategies evolve, it's all strategy is predicated upon counter strategy, right? Like your EV is being uh, determined by what your opponent's reaction is. And I think when a lot of these strategies become popular, it's based upon an undiagnosed exploit in the pool. So when small betting for range became a simplification, it was because people didn't know how to properly respond. MDF wasn't really common knowledge uh, and people were just massively overfolding for any bet size. Mm -hmm. So when that uh, stopped being true, when counter strategies to, because that's what happens, right? A popular trend is now we, we see bet range for 30 or 25 or whatever. Now what's the next emphasis? Well, it's not, it's not continuing down the path of what you do when you are the aggressor. It's, what do you do when you're defending against uh, a range bet of 30? And people are just getting much better at check raising, at calling, at continuing at the proper frequencies. Well, when that becomes the case, now we have to complicate our CBET strategy, right? So now we have to start to implement some checking. And if we're going to implement some checking with some small bets, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Yep. Right? So we have to split our bet sizes. So either we're going to have a big bet and a small bet, or we're going to have a big bet and a check. And that's only the next iteration. The iteration after that is we're going to have a spectrum of bet sizes in, in accordance with checking. We're going to have to figure out, you know, the best and most practical way to implement three sizes on a flop now. Yeah, then your computer blows up because the complexity has just gone <laughs> to the stratosphere. Right, right. Or bomb pots become more popular because solving them is literally impossible. Yeah, I, I, it's the MDA that I've been doing has been against recreational players specifically because their strategies don't really evolve. 
You know, right. they still do the same kind of bad things that they've always done just because of human beings and how we're constructed. I actually, like, I don't like the term recreational player. This is just like a totally silly tangent that I'm going on because I think it's imprecise. And I don't like the term fish or whale because I think there's negative connotations. Actually, the term fish and whale, I don't really mind. I think it just is what it is. I think it's more precise than recreational player, to be it honest is. with you, because like I've met Rex that are like better than me and play higher stakes than me, but they just have like a career and a job. Yeah. So and like it's gonna be common moving forward, I think. Like the ceiling of what a poker career is now is so much lower than what it was 10 years ago or even 20 years ago that you know most professionals are gonna have to have a side gig. Right. And this isn't dude's got a PhD. Like it's not even poker is just like his his labor of love, right? He's just yeah. really fucking great at it. And so to me, like the fish. The whales, right, imagine somebody calling you a recreational entrepreneur. Yeah, like it, it's because, just like, silly. Because you have a business on the side. Right, like it, it's – doesn't make sense. To me, like the term that I've been using that I, I hope catches on is instinctual. Just like an instinctual poker player that sits down and they play poker based on how they feel, their, how their emotions feel in the moment, and they just make decisions by clicking buttons kind of randomly, which to me makes a lot of sense because around the world – Fish in Brazil play very similarly to fish in Australia and fish in Australia play very similarly to fish in the United States. And like, they're not in a chat room. They're not having this conversation hive mind of like, we're all going to use these strategies. So like something's got to be happening there. And to me, it's just based on, you know, being instinctual and your emotions. So I think that term is like, that's what I'm sticking with moving forward is just like, like they're instinctual poker players. I like Um, that. Yeah. I, I use the term studied when talking about or trying to qualify uh, how good a person is. So when someone tells me a hand history and uh, I'm, I think that the decision is close, my question is always like, well, how studied is this person? Right? Because looks can be deceiving. Just because the correct sizing was chosen, if you tell me that he's unstudied and just happened to choose that size, I know that that size is imbalanced. So now I just follow the incentive tra- trail, right? Right. It's like, okay, he chose 75% C-bet. On this, on this particular texture, and that's correct in theory. Well, how studied is he? Not at all. Oh, okay. He bet he bets way too many hands then for this side, for sure. Right. right. 100% because his incentive is to see bet, and he just happened to choose the correct size. Well, there's no fucking way that he just guessed. He just see bets this size on this board texture because he saw it in a video. Right. He's doing it with way too many fucking hands, so let's, let's get in there and start check rating. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, studied unstudied i think that's a good those are good terms too studied poker player unstudied poker player it's uh yeah the the archetype the profile you're playing against certainly will have a dramatic compounding effect on you know just on the overall strategy and it's like well think of the alternative too right like you say who is this guy and they say he's a reg mm -hmm. that doesn't tell me anything right like what type of reg are they like studied or is he unstudied right right because that's gonna alter my decision yeah, the eight nine hand that I told you about, right? Like I actually ran a solve for that and I broke it down on in a poker coaching video. And like what I got to was on the flop, it was like the poker Queen Five suited was what the guy had. He had Queen Five of Diamonds. I don't even know if I said that before. But like he turned a flush draw. My intuition was correct that he was going for a check raise, and I raise his river bet, like once it breaks out. And I go to the flop and it's like Queen Five suited that I know he had. It's a data point that I know 1,000% is not even in his flop range here 
that's betting big. So like, how can you trust the rest of the outputs? Like right. if we've already ruined it from step one, you know, you, you just can't. So yeah. anyway, yeah, the person you're playing against absolutely matters and has a dramatic compounding effect on each and every strategy that goes deeper into the tree. All right. So what, what's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Um, all right. There's a couple. So I started a blog in 2015 when my mom died and, uh, I basically started detailing my backstory. I got to freshman year of college, which was when my grandfather died. And for some reason, I just haven't been able to write that blog. And it's just been stuck there for five years. Uh, I still consider it a work in progress. I'm going to get to it. Uh, I desperately, desperately want to finish that. Why, um, why, why has it been such a struggle? I think like it was hard in the moment to, to like recount that whole time frame. Like my granddad was just one of my idols, uh, somebody that I truly looked up to. And I don't think that I was like ready to write it then. And once I put it off for like six months or whatever, it just became a dead project. Like I just got too busy with other things. I started to solve for why I was playing the big game and I just couldn't ever circle back. So I'm really trying to find and make time uh, to go back and revisit that. Um, and then like more professionally speaking, I guess there's a lot under the hood of self why that we're working on. Uh, we have a documentary coming out next month, uh, both on our site and Poker Go called To Be Determined, where we followed a one-two grinder around for the better part of a year. Um, I think it kind of details the other side, the non-successful side of what it's like to struggle through the game trying to pay rent uh living effectively check to check so i'm pretty excited about that and we've also been working on these uh whiteboard courses for the better part of a year that are finally getting ready to release we're going to be putting them out for free they're basically like introductory courses so kind of like an intro to game theory heuristics uh this is what pot odds are this is what ev is this is you know how the mistakes that like uh going back to what you said intuitive players would make and they're really well done they're scripted they are pure whiteboard the whole way to top to bottom they're like three minutes in length each uh we have seven courses that are i believe five lessons on average each each for an entire curriculum so you know it ultimately breaks down to like 35 40 courses that we're putting out for free that's sick man that's a lot of stuff no yeah. wonder no wonder you have been so busy throughout the pandemic. That's a, a lot of projects that are all going on kind of simultaneously. Yeah. I think for my, for my money, in my opinion, for whatever that's worth the blog post about your grandfather, I think is the one that resonates with me the most. And that I, I, I would look forward to consuming myself just because, you know, my grandfather, who's very luckily still kicking, um, nearing 80 was just such a major influence in my life. And I think at one point I bought a domain name called like legacyinterview.com or something like that, where I had this like idea of like just interviewing loved ones who were getting older so that there would be like this piece of content to kind of remember them by whenever, whenever they passed away. And it just legacies matter to me. And I love when people who are worthy of remembrance do get remembered after the fact. And yeah, so I'm totally on board with that. I think it's, I think it's awesome. Yeah. I, I really need to do, I I really enjoy writing and I haven't done much of it in probably the last five years just because I've been doing so much on film. Um, But I, 
I think I would like to get back to it for a couple of reasons. One, just because it's an easy passion project, but two, I think that like I think a lot of my image misrepresented or misunderstood based on little snippets of of what you get to see. So whether it's somebody only watching a couple of minutes of a self-aware video or uh, it's somebody reading 280 characters on Twitter, uh, I don't think that it does a good job of telling the full story. So I think like the long form stuff that we do in general just depicts the way that I think, the way that I the world, the way I view this game and all this other stuff much better. And I know it's only going to be a subset of people, a very small subset of people who ever actually read this stuff, just like it's only a small subset that listen to the podcast or whatever. But I think it's important to me to at least that project and myself justice and like put it out there in a in a well put together way. I mean, it gives you dimension, right? I, I can yeah. say only from personal experience that like every interaction that I've ever had with Matt Berkey has been great. It's been a pleasure. It's been just an awesome experience. And you know, I don't know why <laughs> there are people out there that just dunk on you because you're just one of the most generous human beings that I've ever met in the poker space that is filled with a shockingly amount of very, very generous human beings. And yeah, it's just always uh, an honor, a pleasure having you on the podcast. I would, you know, do anything to help solve for why. And you guys just keep, you know, having record year after record year. I think that's something that I could, I could very well get behind. And with that said, uh, final question, which is kind of a silly question now that I'm, I'm at it, but where can the, the chasing poker greatness audience, learn more about matt berkey on the world wide web uh yeah so all my socials are berkey 11 you can check out uh tv.selfforwide.io for uh our training stuff uh obviously we have our youtube channel which is just backslash selfforwide on youtube and if you ever want to catch up on a five-year-old blog that i will be <laughs> starting again soon i promise um the site is the voice voice within dot me yeah gonna gonna hold you accountable gonna ask ask every month or right. so yo are you working on this project is it is it moving forward you know what i'm so proud of the url name that like i just have to <laughs> resurge it i think i i was so I've, I've never even heard of a dot me extension mm -hmm. and like to come up with I, I don't know i was i was just like very much patting myself on the back for that. <laughs> So now you're just paying for it year in and year out and not really doing yeah, much with it. <laughs> six bucks a year and I, I, it's dead. It's totally dead. Well, it's not going to be dead. It's going to get resurrected in the near future, man. Um, obviously, you're going to be back on the show at, at some point. It's great. I can't wait for the pandemic to end so we can hang out in the real world. But yeah, with that, I, I will bid you adieu. Thank you once again for your time and your energy. I'm very, very grateful and appreciative. Thanks, man. This was great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.